My wife and I once stood in a small crowd and we watched a master potter demonstrate his craft. He took a, took a hunk of clay and he threw it down on that pottery wheel. He began to spin the wheel and then working with his hands, his so very skilled hands, in just a few minutes, he created an exquisite goblet. He took a formless lump of clay and turned it into something functional and attractive. And when he was done, he carefully examined it from all sides. Then he gently removed it from the wheel. He set it aside on a shelf where it could be painted and glazed and fired in a kiln. He then took another lump of clay and threw it down and made a second goblet, but this time the ending was different. When he finished, that goblet looked perfect to those of us in the crowd. It looked just as unblemished as the first goblet. But as the master potter looked, examined it from all sides, he obviously saw some imperfection, and he took his fist and he smashed it. And there was kind of this collective gasp. (gasps) And he looked at us with a smile. And he said, I know to your untrained eyes it looked perfect, but not to mine. And you see, it's the creator that sets the standards, not the crowd. Now, I don't know if that master potter was a man of faith or not, but I thought that was a powerful object lesson about the relationship between a creator and his creation. And in particular, a marvelous object lesson about our creator, the God who made the heaven and the earth. Our God personally formed the universe and everything in it. And because he is the creator then he sets the standards, not us. Our creator, our master potter, sets the cycles of day and night and establishes the seasons and the tides. And because of his standards and not ours, we can know the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil. And our God sets one very important standard. He sets the standard for justice. God wants us to live in an orderly world, and that means a world with justice, because without justice there would be anarchy. And yet, God also wants us to live in a world where the scales are tilted. They're tilted toward mercy. This is addressed in many places in the Bible. I like the way that the prophet Micah says it in chapter 6, verse 8 of his prophecy. Let's have that scripture on the screen, and I'd like you to read this aloud with me. What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Now let's think for a minute about that, to act justly and to love mercy. Did it ever occur to you that God could have said this the other way around? He could have said that I want you to act mercifully and to love justice. But he didn't. You see, God clearly has a bias, and it's a bias toward mercy. 
our God loves to be merciful. In fact, later in his prophecy, Micah says that our God delights to show mercy. That's who he is. That's how he responds. And he wants us to do the same, to love mercy. And yet we need to recognize that this creates a certain tension because loving mercy means that sometimes we must let go of our desire for justice. And that's not easy to do. Which is why Micah says we must live with humility before God. Humility lets us let go of our pride. Let go of our desire for vengeance so that we can, like our God, act justly, yet also love mercy. I don't see any simple way to resolve the tension between those things, which means we cannot do it without God's help. And at the very outset of the human story, as God deals with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He gives us a vivid demonstration of how to put these principles into action. Our creator, the one who sets the standards, shows us how to balance justice and mercy as he responds to human sin. I want to set the stage by reminding you of the tragic story of Adam and Eve. And then we're going to examine the consequences they experience to see exactly how God carries out justice and mercy. When we we open Genesis chapter 2, we find that God creates Adam and he gives him the gift of life in this place called Eden. It is an idyllic, perfect world. Adam has almost complete freedom with one exception. He is forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he does that, God says, on that day, you'll die. It's a clear standard. A standard set by the Creator, which he has the right to do. And then God creates Eve. And she somehow learns about this prohibition against eating from the tree of knowledge, but we're not told how she learns that. The most logical conclusion is that Adam told Eve what God said, and evidently he didn't do a very good job because Eve doesn't have all the facts straight. When Satan comes to tempt her, to invite her to do what God has said not to do, Eve misquotes God's command. She doesn't have it downright. And then later on, God does not accuse Eve of disobeying a command. Instead, Eve is guilty of being deceived. And that's the kind of thing that can happen when people are not properly taught. It is so much easier to be deceived when we do not have a firm grasp on the truth. So Satan steps into this world of perfection. He instigates an evil act He tempts Eve and she eats the forbidden fruit. She's deceived. She offers some to Adam. And knowing God's standard, he disobeys God's direct command and he also eats the forbidden fruit. And because of what they have done, they immediately feel shame 
they feel guilt. Those things never have existed before, but they do now. The world has changed as a direct result of their actions, and they know it. And God knows it. And so as this story continues to unfold, we see the Creator confront all three players in this tragic drama. And we see Him exercise justice and mercy and humility. Let's take a look at the book of Genesis, chapter 3, starting in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you. Wow. Cursed are you. Above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The serpent, who is Satan, gets the first consequences because he's the instigator of evil. With deliberate, malicious intent, he is set about to undermine God's purposes. And because of this act of overt rebellion, Satan is going to experience God's justice. He is cursed in the very essence of his being. Can you imagine God in his role as creator and judge saying to you, Cursed are you? What a sentence. Every moment of every day, Satan will experience the consequences of his evil act. And just as a snake crawls on the ground and breathes dust, Satan is going to continually be reminded of his lowly status. He may think he has power, but he does not. And furthermore, God says he's going to put enmity which means hostility, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. He's saying that Satan and his fellow evil spirits will be in a state of spiritual warfare with humanity, with the descendants of Eve. And these unclean spirits will be a source of annoyance and irritation, but they will have no real power over human beings made in the image of God. Not unless we believe their lie only power God's enemy has is the power of deceit. And yet there's hope here. Ultimately, Jesus will be the victor. There's a, there's a, a vague prophecy of him here that he will be coming. And yet what happens is when Jesus dies on the cross, Satan thinks he's won. He thinks I killed the Son of God. But to use the language here of Genesis, all that does is just nip at the heel. Of Jesus because Jesus will rise from the grave he will demonstrate his power over sin and death and that act will crush Satan's head Satan gets justice he is judged both in this moment and forever and what we need to see is this the justice and judgment on Satan are so very different from the way that God responds to Adam and Eve. They also deserve justice, but instead they get mercy. And why is that? They get mercy because the Creator is the one who sets the standards. And His standard is to act justly, but to love mercy. 
and he loves to look for opportunities to be merciful to the human beings that he has made in his very own image. And that's what we see play out with Eve and with Adam. Let's continue on. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, this is God still speaking, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Notice that unlike the serpent, Eve is not cursed. You see, she wasn't malicious. She was just foolish. She allowed herself to be deceived by Satan's crafty lies. And because of that, she's going to experience some God-given consequences. And as we read here what Eve will endure, we must remember God's original standard, which was clearly known. The day you eat from the tree is the day you will die. So anything less than immediate death is an act of mercy even if the consequences are painful. Now, I personally think this is a really important concept for us to grasp because let's admit it, we don't like getting consequences when we mess up. And yet sometimes we get consequences that are far less than we actually deserve. And they may be painful, but they still might be an expression of mercy. When I was about 10, I went out one day with my grandfather to do some errands. We hopped in the car, and he drove over to the hardware store, parked his car in the lot, and he said, I'll be back in five minutes. You sit tight. And as he disappeared from view, I immediately ignored his very clear instructions. And I hopped into the driver's seat, grabbed the steering wheel, and pretended to be a race car driver. And I grabbed the gear shift, and I put the car in neutral. It was parked on an incline, and we rolled backward about 10 yards and smashed into a brick wall. It dented the bumper, broke a taillight, chipped some paint. I royally screwed up. (laughs) Now, what would perfect justice look like in that situation? Well, at that time, it was my habit to mow my grandfather's lawn regularly, and he'd pay me a few bucks. He could have said, Bruce, you're going to mow my lawn free for the next several years (laughs) until you pay the cost of the repairs. And that might have been harsh, but it would have been just, would have been deserved. My grandpa chose to be merciful. He paid for the damage, gave me a stern lecture, and asked my dad to give me some consequences that would remind me not to do that again. And so that night I went to bed without dinner. That made a huge impression. And I was cut off from TV for a month. I didn't like any of this. And we could argue about whether or not those were the right consequences, but the fact is they were merciful. They were less than I deserved. And those merciful consequences also taught me a lesson. You see, mercy with consequences can be a great learning experience. They remind us of where we went wrong so that we will do different in the future. 
And in the case of Eve, God extends her mercy by not taking her life. And instead, he gives her some consequences, but what's interesting is they are limited consequences. First, she's going to experience physical pain on those occasions when she gives birth. Obviously, that's not a daily experience. It's a limited consequence. And there's a second consequence God pronounces, which actually affects both her and Adam. God says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, the original Hebrew wording of that passage is rather ambiguous. And Bible scholars have debated for years about what this actually means. I believe the core idea is this. Because women generally are more relational than men, Eve will desire to have a connection with Adam based on nurture and care, and she will try to control the relationship from that perspective. Because men generally are more task-oriented, Adam instead will focus on making decisions and getting things done, and he'll try to control the relationship from that perspective. And this sets up an unhealthy dynamic in the relationship because it results in a periodic power struggle. We need to understand that this is not what God wants for marriages. It's what happens as a result of sin. It's certainly not what we should settle for, and it flies in the face of Christ-like behavior. God wants husbands and wives to become one. He says... He says that here in Genesis. That's the goal that Adam and Eve are given. And when we pridefully battle for control, then we're not pursuing God's goal. When we battle for control, it's a reminder of what we lost in Eden. It's a reminder that we, like Adam and Eve, fall short of God's best. And it's a reminder that we need God's help to have the right kind of humility so that we can build a healthy marriage if we happen to be married. We need godly humility so that we don't have to embrace this consequence. By the way, as we think about what God says to Eve here, I know that some of you believe that Eve bears most of the blame for sin entering the world. And you may even have been taught that all women bear a special burden as a result of her actions. I'd encourage you to look at this from a fresh perspective. Because the consequences given to Eve and the consequences given to Adam, as we'll see, are in fact passed down through the generations. And yet these particular consequences are not experienced by all women. They're only going to be experienced by women who bear children and by women who are married. So if God wants all women to be tainted by Eve's actions, then why would he pronounce consequences that only some women actually will experience? That's worth thinking about. The most important thing to recognize here is this. God sets the standard. And he could have exacted perfect, deserved justice by taking Eve's life. He could have smashed her the way that that master potter smashed the imperfect goblet. 
his clear standard was violated. But he did not respond with perfect justice. What we see here is God's justice tempered by God's mercy because he loves to be merciful. And that mercy results in some limited consequences for Eve. As we move on in the story, we'll see that God's response to Eve is very different than his response to Adam because each of them has failed in a distinctly different way. Adam also receives mercy, but for him the consequences are much more severe. Continuing on, verse 17, To Adam, he said, this is God still speaking, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you. You must not eat from it. There was the standard. He willingly violated it. And because of that, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam is guilty of disobedience. He knew exactly what God expected, and he foolishly ignored the standard set by his creator. And once again, God could have have responded with perfect, deserved justice and killed him, but instead he spared his life. And unlike Eve, who got some limited consequences, Adam is going to experience ongoing consequences. There's another interesting contrast. We see the word curse mentioned again here. Satan was cursed in his being. The word curse never comes up when God talks to Eve, and here it shows up again. But Adam is not cursed in his being. What's cursed is his place of employment, the ground that he works. And now as he tills the soil each day, he will be forced to deal with obstructions like thorns and thistles, which evidently did not previously exist in Eden. Every time he works, Adam will realize what he has lost. He's going to experience these consequences because of willful disobedience. And these consequences are passed on and experienced by all of mankind. For every human being, our relationship to our world and our work has forever been distorted because of Adam's sin. These are not easy consequences to bear. Yet they still are an act of mercy. God's justice, tempered by mercy, means lesser consequences than death. And they become a training ground to help Adam mold and shape his life so he can hopefully not make the same kind of mistakes in the future. And once again, if you think that Eve bears most of the blame, I would offer two thoughts. First, it seems to me that justice and judgment and mercy should be proportional to the original behavior. And Eve gets off much more lightly than Adam, which tells me that God holds Adam accountable for a much greater failure. Second, I believe that it's always right to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And in the book of Romans, chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes it painfully clear that sin entered the world because of one man, Adam. Adam 
carries the bulk of the blame. And he pays the biggest price. And yet not the ultimate price. Because God acts justly, but he softens his justice. He softens his justice because our creator loves to be merciful. That's the standard. And as this story plays out, we see God's mercy at work in one final way. He offers this couple forgiveness, and he sets some healthy boundaries around their life to guide them in the future. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, heavenly beings, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, the word forgiveness never appears in this passage, but we clearly see it in action. We see it when God covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He personally makes clothes for them from the skin of an animal. It's the first animal sacrifice in history. An innocent animal pays with its life to help cover the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve. And so by this simple yet profound act, we see that God is caring, he's loving, he's forgiving, he is merciful. And then he knows, because he's had a vivid example, he knows how easily this man and this woman can yield to temptation. So he banishes them from Eden and makes it impossible for them to return. And yes, that's harsh, but it's also merciful. God is setting a healthy boundary to protect them from their worst impulses. So they don't go back and sample stuff they're not supposed to eat. And let's be honest, we don't like boundaries. Sometimes we need them. Boundaries often are very good for us. We all need various kinds of boundaries to protect us from ourselves. My wife Julie was once attending a a conference at a hotel and she was walking through a hallway with her friend Linda. Linda needed for some reason to make change for a $20 bill. Was looking for a place to do that. And they happened to pass by the lobby bar. And they could see the cashier over there behind the bar. Linda took that $20 bill, handed it to Julie, and she said, would you walk over and get change for me? Now, obviously, that's a pretty simple task. She clearly could do that herself. Why didn't she? Well, Julie took the 20 and went and made change because she knew Linda's story. Linda was a recovering alcoholic. And to keep herself sober, she set very strict boundaries on her behavior. And one of those boundaries was, I don't go into a bar for any reason, even if it's something as simple as making change for a $20 bill. See, boundaries sometimes are really good for us. And whether they are self-imposed boundaries or boundaries established for us by others, they can protect us from our worst impulses.
I find myself wondering what merciful boundaries would be helpful for you and helpful for me so that we can stay on the path that God sets for us and live as faithful followers of Jesus. Boundaries can be merciful. And this this boundary set by God for Adam and Eve is an overt act of merciful love. He keeps them out of Eden because he does not want to see them fail in the same way again. That is so loving. That is so merciful. To me, the takeaway from this story is profound. This couple has failed miserably. Yet God responds by acting justly and loving mercy. He loves to be merciful to human beings made in his own image, particularly when they've not acted with malicious intent. Adam and Eve have done great wrong, but only because they were foolish not because they were evil. Now at the outset, I mentioned God's humility, and you might be asking, well, where where in this story do we see God be humble? And I would say we see God's humility in his mercy. A prideful God would have been full of vengeance and anger, and he might have said something like this, I personally created you, I trusted you, and you let me down, and you made me look bad. Obviously, you're imperfect, so I'm going to crush you. Seems to me that's the kind of attitude we might display when someone's done something that we don't like. It's like the behavior of that master potter who smashed an imperfect goblet with his fist. But that's not how our God responds. Despite what could be viewed as humiliating betrayal of two human beings made in his image, he does not wipe them out. He humbly tempers his justice with mercy. And by doing so, he shows us the way forward. And when we mess up, we need to remember that God has a bias toward mercy. Now, that's not a license to sin but it should remind us that forgiveness is available. And like Adam and Eve, we might deal with consequences, but but they'll likely be less than we deserve. After all, the wages of sin is death. And when we sin, we don't die. We deal with lesser consequences. Knowing the mercy of God when we mess up, we should eagerly repent and take our sins and lay them at his feet. And then there are those times when we feel wronged. And in those moments, we need to recognize that we, like our creator, can choose to withhold our demands for perfect justice. And in all of the various situations of life, it never will be easy to decide when do we stand for justice. When do we temper our justice and extend mercy? If we're going to do that, we must be led by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit can help you, and the Spirit can help me discern how to act justly and how to love mercy. And He will help us do that as we make the choice to daily walk humbly with
act justly. Love mercy. Be humble. See, that's the way of our creator. That's the way of our master potter. Those are his standards. And here in this Bible passage, he models them for us. And I believe he asks us one simple question. Will you be imitators of me?